This is Eastman's Elevated Podcast. I have on great guests that are really knowledgeable, consistently successful. We're able to dive deep down the rabbit holes of these different subject matters of shooting, of physical fitness, of mental toughness and drive. All the different skills that make up a complete hunter that you can become. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. The first one of the new year, 2024. I always like to look back and reflect upon the previous year and then set goals and uh, ambitions for uh, the new year. It feels like kind of a fresh start and um, more of the same, really. Uh, just uh, continuing through my my everyday grind of running and my push-ups, pull-ups, my shooting. Uh, Bo's really coming along, so couldn't be more excited for 2024 and we start off the season right so i have back on my buddy michael alba and michael uh he's a diehard bow hunter he absolutely loves it and uh this year he came in clutch and uh, he was able to harvest a couple of just these next level giant bucks and so we kind of break down the story and figure out exactly how he did it and some of his ideas are like outside the box thinking and um, he was able to get creative and arrow a couple giant bucks and fun to hear the story fun to hear about the units he's hunting and, and then just talk bow hunting is uh, Michael absolutely loves it and so we're able to dive deep on that subject so it's the the perfect podcast for the new year and thanks for uh, thanks to Michael for coming on the podcast he's always just an absolute wealth of knowledge and um he also probes me for some information on how some of my hunts went, so we get into that as well. Uh, it's a, a great episode. I think you guys are really going to like it. We'll get right into it. I just want to thank a couple sponsors, and uh, we'll get on with the show. So I want to thank Matthews. Um, man, that new lift is absolutely shooting for me. I'm just in love with that bow, and I have that new... Uh, shot ID. I was able to get that hooked up where it tracks every single shot I take out of that bow, and it shows me uh, my hold in MOA at inches at 100 yards, and so I can really mess with my stabilizers, with my weights, and uh, also with my draw length a little bit to find the absolute best hold. Uh, it also shows me like torque. It shows me like the time of the shot. It gives me a score rating. It's a really cool program that fits in the uh, handle of my bow. In fact, thinking about it now, I got to get it plugged in. I was at about 20% power last night. So yeah, get it plugged in, tracks all my shots. It'll also track my shots for hunting so I can reflect back on my shots on hunting. So really cool program, but that new lift Matthews has outdone themselves the performance I'm getting out of that bow is insane for my short draw length and uh, got some arrows made up that are really getting along good with that bow so yeah it's going to keep working my way through it here I like to really take my time with my sight tapes really take my time with the setup uh, every step of the process to make sure I get it right and then after I have it all right to mark it and as Matthews just keep a hold so well or keep a tune so well hold a tune so well um, which is awesome I can pull out last year's bow and the tune is still just like I left it uh, but they're just making incredibly incredible bows that that shoot forgiving hold the tune stand up to all the abuse i can give it and there's no doubt this new lift is going to be amazing for 2024 making shots for me so if you're in the market for a new bow go check them out over at matthews those guys have outdone themselves with this new bow uh, just over the moon about it 
So I also want to thank Stone Glacier. So Stone Glacier, um, man, I really like the whole crew over there at Stone Glacier, all the gear that they produce. I've been using their sleep systems and their their bags are unparalleled in the industry. They hold their temp rating right down to the temp that they say. So I have a 15 degree and can keep warm in it to 15 degrees. You know, I have some cheats, like if I wear my puffy clothes, I can dip that rating a little bit. Uh, but just great sleeping bags, uh, great sleep systems, the tents. You know, I really like that Sky Air. It's a great bivy tent. It's a modular system where I can add the floor in it, which I like to use, the bathtub floor. I also like to use the vestibule as that kind of closes me off from weather, gives it a dry place to stick my pack and some of my gear. Uh, they also have their one-person, two-person. I have one of their one-person bomb-proof tents, and it's like a great tent for above tree line or like uh, New Zealand where I know I'm going to hit gnarly weather. I use it a lot for elk season. Uh, just a great tent. And uh, check out everything those guys produce over there. Just a great crew of guys, great gear. Uh, they use their gear. There's a reason why it's so good is because um, they need it for all their back uh, country hunts as well. So check those guys out over at Stone Glacier. We really appreciate their support over here on the podcast. And uh, going to get those guys back on the podcast here soon for a good recording. I also want to thank the guys over at Black Ovis. They run the internet retail shop at Black Ovis. Uh, they carry all the top name brands as well as their own name brand. You can save 10% on your order by putting in the promo code ELEVATED10. Uh, also check out Camo Fire. A bunch of great deals that come up. Over 80 new deals every 24 hours. You can save a pile of money on uh, different gear, and they definitely have like high quality gear on there that comes up as well. You can download the app and look to save a pile of money there with Camo Fire. Man, with that, over at Eastman's, um, we're just cruising along. We got the magazines Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, we have Eastman's Tag Hub that'll help you put in for all these different states and units, which we're in application season now. Put in the promo code BRIAN, that'll save you 10% on that. Uh, we still have the Mule Deer course, everything I know about traveling and hunting Mule Deer. Uh, definitely shorten your learning curve by years just by going through the the video course. It takes, um, you know, depending on how quick you go through it, but a couple week course over 100 videos and uh, learn how I travel and hunt these Mule Deer across the United States in all different habitats and all different seasons. And um, also check out our Beyond the Grid. Got that new goat hunt that released. I'm really proud of the videography and how that came out. Uh, so you can find that on Eastman's Hunting TV, the YouTube channel there. And um, yeah, we're gonna uh, we're about wrapped up for the season. I think Dan's gonna release his mountain lion hunt from last year, so you can go check that out. And um, man, yeah, should be some good stuff on there. So um, check out the Beyond the Grid, everything we're doing over there at Eastman's. And um, man, with that, into the new year. Um, just stoked at um, what this season is going to hold. So can't wait to start planning all these adventures and already scheming and trying to figure out how I can get tags and how I can draw some things and then also where I can shoot for the moon and try to draw some of those tougher, more premium tags. So we'll see what I can come up with here. And, and um, man, it's uh, just time to dive into the research and the planning and the different states. And um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't be more excited for this year. And it's... Um, working with this bow and improving my shooting, improving my fitness, and um, man, just going for it. It's going to be full send in 2024, so I can't wait. 
Uh, so I know you guys are excited too as you're listening to this podcast in January, the the first of the new year. So you guys got to be just as stoked on your new season as I am. So thanks a bunch for the support. Uh, let's get into this podcast. It's a great one with Michael Alba. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Um, dude, heck of a season, huh? Just a couple monster bucks there. It was great. Um, everyone's kind of been giving me a lot of crap for it and telling me it'll never happen again, and I do not expect it to happen again. Um, but it, I am blessed and cherishing it. Uh, so thankful for what happened this year. Yeah, uh, well, rightfully so, man. It's just, um, yeah, it's a testament to all your hard work and dedication. It takes so many right moves to have it come together, especially like on mature bucks like that. Um, yeah, kudos to you, like uh, uh, being cool under pressure and making your shots, your stocks, uh, the whole deal start from um, end. So that first one came from like um, uh, where, like uh, Oregon, right? Like in spots you like to hunt there? Yeah, I basically did three hunts this year and the two of them were archery deer hunts. And then I, I helped a buddy with a sheep hunt uh, later in October, which was a lot of fun too. Oh, wow. But the first one was in Oregon. It was the earliest one that you could get it started on the 10th of August and uh it was in an area that I had drawn an antelope tag the year uh, before so I kind of really enjoyed the country um and I started thinking maybe I could go look around for a buck out there uh it historically was known for holding a lot of big bucks but there it, it's prote- it's a protected area and they don't do any cougar hunting in there and from what I understand the cougars came in uh, wiped out all the deer, and then they wiped out all the sheep, and then there was nothing to eat, so they left. And then the deer moved back in from neighboring units and started to repopulate and kind of got a little bit better over the last five or six years, and the winters haven't been too bad. So um, I decided to give it a whirl. Um, knowing how the, the point system's going all around, it, it doesn't really uh, do you any good to hold on to your points. I feel like I'd rather do it like you and kind of have a couple of points two three points hunt more often Mm -hmm. and not hold out for something that takes 20 years to draw so i was watching the moisture all year and it seemed like a good year and i said well let's just go work hard and see if we can find something out there um i worked with a guide on the antelope hunt and he's a local fellow his name's taylor really good guy um and he helped me on the antelope hunt um and then i asked him to help me again on the uh the deer hunt because uh, he lives close by and he makes an hour drive to get to animals where it takes me like four hours to go scout stuff. So it just seemed like I'd rather pay somebody that's a local guy uh, to go out there that's passionate about it and do a little bit of scouting for me. Um, and he had located a pretty big deer the year before, uh, but turns out we couldn't find that one. And it was on, we found out just a month ago, it was on private land the whole time we were looking for him for like a month and a half and uh, the auction hunter took him for, he was just under 200 inches and he flew in on a helicopter and smoked this guy with a rifle oh, wow. so we were looking for a good deer but we couldn't find him and he wasn't available to us so we we searched elsewhere um, and we turned up that one that I got and it was great uh, we actually got him on the first day and it, it it's it was truly just a culmination of all the the hunting experience I think I've had over the 11 years of bow hunting. And we, we knew that this deer had been undisturbed and there was nobody else after him. And we kind of figured out 
what was this deer going to do um, on its morning pilgrimage to bedding? And uh, he was in the same spot every morning feeding, and he kind of went up the same hill uh, every day. And we guessed pretty good. I was right within 150 yards from when he passed me, but he, he traveled, I'd say, about 500 yards from when we first saw him. And he passed me, and then he went up on this little bench of a ledge, and I decided to kind of let him get past me rather than make a aggressive move right off the bat because I didn't want to blow anything up. Got up on the saddle. Um, I decided to chase after him, and it was pretty thick in there with juniper and sage, kind of the country hilly type stuff. Um, I saw him as soon as I got up there, and of course he had seen me before I saw him, but the wind was okay, and he didn't spook too far. He went up the canyon about 200 yards and kind of sat next to another juniper tree. And at this point, he was f- quite far away from where he was feeding in the morning, and I thought, uh, I just watched him for about 30 minutes, and he was kind of getting comfortable under this tree, and there was shade, 360 degrees if he needed it as the sun rotated around. Um, I thought he was going to get comfortable there, and and he did. And I thought that he was going to be there for a while, so I made the executive decision to get off the mountain and find Taylor, who was helping me with it, and make sure that he knew where he was as well and got a, a vantage point up above him so that if I buggered him off on my second attempt to stalk on him, I knew where he was going to go because there was cliffs on both sides and I didn't want to lose him because he was in the spot that, you know, he could have gotten lost any different direction. Um, so we, we, we repositioned him up there and then I got, I got off the mountain, got back onto the mountain into the same spot and uh, was hoping for him to come back the way he came. And as we all know, big mature mule deer don't, go the same way that they heard or saw something in. (laughs) They're always going to take a different route out of there to get back to feeding or wherever they're going to go. And uh, he did wind up going up over another hill. And it, I I mean, I I just sat on him in like two or three different beds from, I want to say from 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. And he finally made this like midday move away from this bed. And I, uh, I saw him going down into this little gully a couple hundred yards away, and I actually like got up and started running towards him because he just got underneath so I could see his antler tips, and I knew that was the only time I was going to have to close distance. And uh, he popped up middle of the day, 3 p.m., and he had gave me a 55-yard shot, and I was shaking like I don't even know, and uh, let one fly, and it, it, it hit him pretty good. Um, and he didn't kick or spook or anything he just went up the hill about five yards and turned around and then walked about 10 yards over and then bedded down and it wasn't a, a full-on kill hit i think it was a liver hit it was a little bit low mm-hmm. um but he bedded in an area um that i was able to put another arrow in right away and uh that was the first one it was it was pretty cool Dude, the coolest. Yeah. Like, um, man, so beautiful, like, just the decision-making process, like, uh, hunting that thing, like, really relying on your instincts. And I love those stocks or those plays that, like, play out throughout the day or through multiple hours in different beds. And, you know, it, and then, yeah, it's just, like, so much I'd, I want to talk about during that hunt. So really good outside-the-box thinking, like, um uh, hiring that guy to to look at the unit and find deer and then like being able to team up with them, especially like 
you know, when you're so short on time and so busy that time of year. So you get that good intel, choosing a unit that's on the up, and it it's like most of these um these really good units nowadays, it's like you almost got to have like an edge. Like the I'm sure the densities aren't real high there, but it sounds like high sage um you know just a a lot of country and not a lot of deer that you really got to dial in you know which is good and then so it was like you versus the buck you didn't have it wasn't combat hunting or something of that nature and um then the moves you made like uh knowing what you can get away with and what you can't bump the buck kept with him up and through that that drainage and he just didn't want to leave like his home zone and it was probably the first time he's seen a human all year long and then the the play down on them, and then finally the shot, man. It's beautiful, isn't that? It's like so killer when it comes together, but it takes these years of experience and making so many mistakes, and you're almost like reacting in real time, decision making in real time. But when it all comes together, it is like it's meant to be your combination of all your years of hunting. You know, you you don't really think through every move you're gonna make, but you almost start to trust it. Right. You're, you're truly right about all that. And when we get to the second buck, I'll tell you about some stuff that was really up to fate and skill or whatever you want to call it. Um, but getting back to this particular one, I always look in hindsight sort of about where it could have all gone wrong and where you roll the dice a little bit harder than you'd like to roll them. Yeah. And when I left the mountain at 9.45, 10 a.m., when he finally got comfortable under that one juniper tree, I mean, in the past, I've left animals and they're not in the same spot when you come back, whether it be an hour later or 30 minutes later or whatever. But kind of knowing that he hadn't had a lot of pressure was about a mile away from where he feeds and that he felt safe there. I kind of felt like that was a second bedding area and he was going to give me at least like an hour and a half there. And it turns out that he gave me exactly that amount of time. And as soon as I got back, he was standing up. And he was getting ready to move from that secondary bedding to the, the midday thing where they are never really comfortable. And they're kind of chasing around the tree for shade and figuring out where they're going to go. But but I, 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 I that was my biggest moment where I think that deer could have escaped me right mm-hmm. there. It was, it was leaving him. And I didn't want to leave him. But I knew that if I hadn't gotten a second set of eyes on him, that I thought that it would have been bad news bears for evening stock or even the morning or see where he could have gone. Those deer can travel so far. Um, and yeah, having uh, Taylor involved was just great because with two kids and the time and the money, it, it's just so worth it to have a guy that has local knowledge and experience help you guide you into a spot and just, you can be that much more successful and efficient uh-huh. on five or six days. I've never even had a, a, a a mule deer guide and all of my 10 deer that I've taken before this. Um, so it was a little strange to have one, but it worked out great because he was super passionate and hardworking. And I think that the, t- the teamwork was really good for that. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's like, just like teaming up with your buddy, you know, it's just, um, right. yeah, you were able to give him the time to go look for it, you know? Yeah, man, it makes sense. And like, you're just going to cut your learning curve so fast. Like, you know, he spends a bunch of time in the area, keeping his eye on bucks, you know, you're going to cut a few years off the learning curve, which may take you a few years to learn that unit and what the bucks do. So yeah, cut the learning curve for sure. <clears throat> and then like you say, smart, 
I've left animals before, like sometimes hunting elk or, you know, this year I left a, a mule deer buck because it was better to access from the other direction. And so it mm-hmm. went all the way down. But you're right in that they, they just don't stay bedded forever, do they? they and they, they get up throughout the day. They're not on their feet all day, but they get up and they'll change beds or sometimes they're – it depends on the area, but sometimes it's really random. They can get up and move to a totally different area, middle of day, you know, and you talked about first and second bed. Usually I'd say like that first bed is usually in the sun or semi-open or around their feeding feature. It could even be in their feeding feature. And they'll lay there for a little bit and chew their cud, and then they'll get up again. But, you know, they can also break all the rules and be bedded at first light too. But usually it's that first bed. Second bed is more timbered, more shaded more cover for like that longer sun or afternoon sun and and you're mm-hmm. saying that um you know that this buck was that you see bucks actually move again after that to like afternoon evening beds and get real shifty with the shade as it gets warmer in a lot of areas you hunt huh well i think that in that sagebrush country that's rim rocky and you have some juniper there's there's some patches where it can get super thick and forested where they feel like they're completely tucked away but generally, that's farther away than they want to be from a feeding feature or water or something. So they'll just pick out random trees or little clumps of trees. Um, and then they dance around the shade of that tree uh, however they see fit. And or they'll hit up a ridge and they'll catch a breeze. And I think that breeze will cool them down quite a bit uh, if they if they nestle into the shade of a rim rock and they can sit there. And they love just looking out over the whole desert. Um, I've, you see them there countless times, but they, they won't sit there all day long because it's also like a prime spot for cats to get them from the top. And, uh, you know, I think this particular deer was down in a drainage for a little longer than it wanted to be. And the wind probably was stagnating and, you know, he wants to get something flowing through his nose. So he popped up onto the hill and sat there for another hour and checked that out. And then he decided he needed to start getting closer to the feet feeding area, you know, around 3 p.m. to make a move down there for a 6 p.m. feed probably because it's still a mile and a half away. Um, so I'm just trying to think like him the whole time and wondering what the next move is. But you just don't know if he's going to go left or right. And that's why it's important to have, you, you know, your eyes on him. And if you can get a buddy's eyes on him uh, at the same time. And a lot of times you can't do that. Being a solo hunter previous to this, you never can do that. So then you're putting yourself into a situation that's not the best situation to shoot a buck, but to keep tabs on a buck. Mm-hmm. So that so when you have a partner, it's it's so much nicer that way, I feel like. Oh, it makes sense. Yeah, it's like if somebody can keep their eyes on them. And it sounds like I'm getting a better feel for the terrain in the country, the real open sage country, you know. And they mm-hmm. they can. They can, bid, they can bed in the middle of that sage about anywhere and disappear in that stuff. Um, yeah, man, oh, it could that's... be seven feet tall, the sage. Yep. Yep. That's yeah. wild. So are you using, like, I love hunting mule deer in that open terrain and we hunt them in a varied terrains, right? It's like wherever we're going, but in that open country, it sure seems like you can keep track of them pretty good and I can make pretty good plays. And even though it seems wide open, you have the sage and ungulation and topography and, mm-hmm. and ultimately like I've been on big bucks before, like where I, I, I'm almost too passive or too patient and it's like you're waiting for the right move and you do like you don't want to blow it. If the wind's wrong, you can't make a play like you start to learn 
what you can get away with and what you can't, and you make your decisions based on that. But you also can't sit and watch a giant buck for five days and never make a play at him. Like eventually, exactly. you got to go all in and play the game. And when you're playing the game, like like you you mentioned rolling the dice, like it is always rolling the dice because their instincts are so keen that you're like that's the time where you're matching wits with them. And one little mistake, one too many steps over a ridge line, one crack of a stick. Uh, one swirl of the wind that you didn't quite account for and the, and the gigs up and then you're right like having a buddy like if that thing spooks off like sometimes you can keep track of him relocate him even by yourself you you kind of try to figure out where he went and, and turn him up again but ultimately like you got to get in there and play the game and match wits with that buck and, and you want to wait for a high percentage play but there too you can't just sit days on in waiting on a buck or or maybe you can what are your theories on it, it sounds like you made a play on that buck like when you saw the opportunity well i know that when you have a guide uh, your time's limited and i that always makes me uneasy when you're back at camp eating dinner and all this stuff, you know that that guy and his tent and all these things are going to leave, even though you have backup stuff uh, in a certain amount of time. And from my experience, they've always been really fired up the first two, three days of the hunt. And then their involvement sort of like weans off a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I'm solo and I'm out there for, let's say 13 days, it, I don't care what happens in the first three days. I'm just learning what's going to happen. I'm learning how the wind blows, the thermals, where the deer are, all that stuff, and being super cautious about it. But he had already found the deer. We kind of knew what its pattern was. So it was like go time opening morning. Um, and I think that it was okay to make a fairly aggressive play, knowing that there was another set of eyes on on the deer. Um, where if it was me, I probably wouldn't have done that right off the bat. I would have waited them out probably even longer Mm. than what I did for, I waited them out for six hours as it was seven hours, but I probably would have waited them out all the way till the sun went down and tried to make a evening move on them. Um, so I think that the dynamic changes a little bit depending on who's in your corner and how much time you have with that person. Mm Um, pretty much. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it depends on the scenario or the situation. Yeah, I guess just weighing all the options, like the the weather that's coming in. You don't know if there's storms sure. coming in, maybe more aggressive. If you got good weather coming up, less aggressive. And it depends on the situation. And you kind of make, like at least for me, it's like what I can get away with and what I can't. I can look at a scenario and go, well, I don't have a play there. I'm just going to end up busting them. Like the wind's too swirly today or – He's got a two-point bedded above him, and that's my approach. And so that's a no-go. But then I see another scenario where he's, like, on his feet, and he's moving through the sage where it's like, okay, I know he won't see me here. I'm hidden behind that ridgeline. I'm going to see what I can get. And I get down in there and just start playing the game a little bit. But I know my wind's right. I know he's not going to catch my movement. But I am – you know, I am going for it or all in, but yeah, I guess it, it does depend like on, on different variables, but yeah, I usually just don't sit back. Usually I'll watch a big buck and try to pattern him, which it sounds like you guys had him patterned, but I'll, I'll, I'll pattern him and maybe hunt him until I see that opportunity. But usually it's not more than a couple days and I'm going to make a play on a buck. No, I'm totally with you. And, uh, yeah, I love your saying patience kills the buck. And I do believe that that's the case, but 
you'd be surprised. I'm constantly surprised at the kind of stuff I can get away with mm-hmm. if you do get aggressive. Um, and there's some certain things you always have to have the wind you have to have and movement. You have to be smart about. Um, but I mean, you can close some ground on a deer that doesn't have a lot of pressure in a particular unit faster than you can in a different unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to take all those things and program them into your bow hunting computer and see what it spits out on the paper <laughs> and hope it's the right answer, you know? It's so and, true. And we're humbled every time we go out yeah. one way or another. Yeah. Well, good work, dude. What a buck. Um, yeah, had to, very had nice. to be, it had to be so fun, like walking up to that deer. He had to have some ground growage for sure, man. It just looked like a stellar one, like good mass, killed him in the velvet. Like you say, that August 10th. I love hunting those August dates for mule deer, don't you? Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's it's. I think that the best time to get a big mule deer is in August, although I still feel like some of the bigger ones are really nocturnal and they don't come out, but they still got to feed that velvet and grow those things, and it's just natural for them to be up high feeding and doing deer stuff. Um, and when that velvet comes off, the whole game changes, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you get a big buck in the rut, it's a whole different game, too, as you know, because I think that's what you were just up to on the, your last few hunts. There's just so many sets of eyes. And a real keen buck will will use that that herd of does as smokescreen to get away from a predator. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a whole different dynamic to a, a buck that's all about feeding versus a buck that's all about mating that's keyed up on hormones and will make stupid moves, but at the same time is still smart. And it's the only time you see that deer all year long is when he comes out for seven days to hang with the does, you know, and those guys don't get to be that old and big doing stupid stuff during archery season. No, uh, it's the beauty of mule deer. And I know Uh, you love it. Like I do trophy out there. Yeah. It's, um, you know, and I know you get to hunt all those different seasons and have had success in all those different seasons. And you're right. The dynamic totally changes, but I'm with you that, that August, that early time frame focused on feeding. Yeah. I mean, um, just kind of more of a lax attitude and hanging with the boys, you know, in the bachelor herds. And so, you know, you're able to find those big ones. So yeah, I mean, it's where like, my biggest bucks have come from for sure. And then, yeah, it does change once they strip their velvet, that, that tighter secondary living, tighten up their programs. But I still think there's an opportunity out there as, as there's not a lot of guys chasing them. And it looks, you have to look over a bunch of different spots, but when you do find them, it seems like they're real patternable. Like they're just feeding in a little shoot or a little slide in one little spot, one little area where then you can kind of pattern them and get a good chance. And then of course the rut is like brings the big boys out, but it's the blessing and the curse. It's like they're always moving so you can see them, but then they're always moving so they're tough to catch up to. And just like you stated with the does, like uh, using them as guards. And so, yeah, man, it's like it's tough, but it's um, it's so fun, like uh, chasing mule deer that you can chase them through all those seasons. And it's almost like chasing a different animal, you know. Um, uh, man, totally agree. Killer. Yep. So you I have love that. mule deer. Oh, dude, I know it. Yeah, and then you had another one lined up, and so you drew a tag, um, I believe it was Arizona, right? Right, so I, I blew those. The first one took seven or eight points to draw, um, so I got wiped out on that. And then the second one, I've been waiting in Arizona for good moisture to fall for a little while. It's kind of waiting for the strip, um, and then I kept telling myself, I, I'm not getting any younger. I need to think about a unit that's not the strip 
and I decided to put in for the Kaibab archery. Um, and the crazy part about that was, as I was talking to my buddy that pays for all the subscription services to crunch the numbers, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, last year it took 11 points to get that tag. And I'm like, oh, great, I got 11 points. But me and everybody and their grandmother were thinking about what happened during with the moisture this last spring and summer um, and winter and the mild winter. And after checking out um, the actual point totals, because I guess Arizona releases the data after the draws happened, it took 15 points, I think. Thir- it was 14, it was, it was three or four points higher than what it took the year prior with point creep to guarantee in the max point draw. Wow. So I actually drew in the, the random pass. Um, so I got lucky there. Um, and I, it was just scary to think that it could jump by that many points in one year for an archery tag that has like 300 tags. Um, and the place was a zoo. There's, it's just crawling with people and there's outfitters all over the place. And again, I hired another outfitter there that I had made friends with previously on my last job in Utah. Um, and those guys were great. And it was a little different of a situation. There wasn't a particular deer picked out because those deer are running all over the place. And uh, that Kaibab hunt, a lot of our guys are hunting in this burn area where there's some newer aspen growth that's not super tall. And it's kind of tough to see the animals, but the place was just littered with hunters and all kinds of outfitters. I mean, there must have been seven or eight different outfitters up there with camps of five or six people. Like, I'd never been a part of something like this before. <laughs> it was it was crazy. That's you know? an experience. Yeah, that is wild, man. I've always thought about that yeah. Kaibab. It's, it's wild to hear your firsthand experience. So there were guides and outfitters all over that place because they kill some big bucks, but... Like, it's kind of thicker country, right? And so that burn you can kind of glass, but newer aspens? Or what was the terrain like? Well, so there's it, – it's got anything and everything in between. I mean, it's the edge of the Grand Canyon, and it goes to uh, southern Utah. Um, and so there's – where most everybody's hunting is up on the plateau where the higher elevation is. It's tall ponderosa uh, with the canopy that you would expect – of a, of a ponderosa canopy, just like pine needles and, you know, some, some burnt stuff. And then there's this newer burn area where all these aspens are growing. It's very thick, um, which I took a couple of jaunts through the first few days and realized like, I don't know how I'm going to bow hunt this because it's noisier than hell and you can't get a shot farther than about 20 or 30 yards, even if you can see a deer and, and know where it is. And everybody's hunting in this. Like there's dudes and trucks and and guys with spotting scopes hunting this stuff all over the place. And, and then to the South, um, in a couple different areas, there's these meadow pockets that you'll find and you'll see deer come out in the mornings and evenings and they go back into the, um, the thick stuff. And I'm familiar with that from some previous Arizona hunting that I've done before, um, and it's a bit more of like a waiting game and trying to figure out what hole they're coming in and out of and the wind and all this and that. And, and one evening I saw a real nice five by five come out in a particular meadow. This is before the hunt started. And I said, well, let's go try to hunt that one. Looked like he was like a 190 class type buck. And I started hunting him. Um, and there's so many deer in there that I, I think I actually got on a different deer that opening morning. And then the outfitter that I'm working with is talking to like three or four different guides while I'm hunting. And he's gathering all this information from different people. 
and they're hunting a five by five too. <clears throat> and, but they're in the neighboring meadow and I'm like, Oh, well, I wonder if my five by five moved to that meadow or if it's a different deer or what's going on. And so we just like said, well, maybe we'll try to be on the outskirts of where they're hunting because that deer is running this area that's two to four miles from here to there. And, and let's just see what happens the next morning. So, you know, we do that for a couple of days and they keep gathering more and more information and they start describing the buck that they're after to my guide. And it doesn't sound like the one that we're after, but it's also a five by five. And we've never seen this one, but we think it's the same one I'm after. And I'm like, well, I've seen that one. So I'm going to go after it. It's the best one I'm after. And I don't want to do this stuff in the, in the, in the Aspens because it just seems like a very low percentage play with all the people in there and the noise and not really knowing where any deer is going to be from one morning to the next. Uh, but at least these deer are somewhat patternable, you know? Um, and this, this was just the craziest hunt. I was day three where I took this deer and I had been in that area, I think for either one or two or three mornings in the same general area. <clears throat> and I knew some pockets where animals came in and out, but I still had never seen this particular buck, but I knew where they were kind of hunting too. And there was probably about a mile stretch of holes where they would come to meadows to feed and go back into the thick stuff. So th that particular evening I decided to go in there and I saw a little hole looking on my map that opened up to a meadow back inside there. I decided to walk into that hole early in the evening around 3 PM, 2 PM, something like that. And just sitting there and take it all in for a while. And I did like a little tiny lap in there. I didn't want to penetrate too hard. I just wanted to see what it was like back in there. And there's a couple, like one spike I saw back in there or a little forky. And then I came out a different hole and then I kind of, the sun was setting and I just going for my evening setup as to what areas I wanted to cover and what I could see and how far I could see. And I decided to do this one little, uh, hill to hill rise with like a dip in, in between. Maybe it was 300 yards across and a couple holes down in the dip and then a hole up on top of one of the ridges and then another hole on the other ridge. So I could see a lot of stuff from this one area. So I decided to set up there um, <clears throat> and I waited for a long time and uh, I saw a deer very far away, a mile this way and a mile that way coming out these other holes and there's nothing coming out around me. Um, so I was getting a little antsy and, and patience kills the buck and I'm just telling myself to hold on and wait a little bit. And, and I was just about to get up and take off and I see uh, some does peeking out of the hole down in the, the gully. And so I, I hold real still and they're close to me. They're coming like right at me and the wind is blowing towards the meadow. So the wind's good. Um, and these does came out. There was about five or six of them. I was just frozen on my knees, losing circulation in my toes. You've been there. Um, and you're just trying to stay as still as possible. They had no idea I was there. They walked by me at 15 yards, all of them. And then I knew it was going to be trouble when they got behind me in the meadow because my wind was going to be blowing right at them. So they got right behind me and then their noses all went up and they started snorting and flinging tails around and all this. And I said, okay, well, let's see if anything else is coming out of the hole. I hope they don't run back into the hole, but they stay out in the meadow and go feed. And that's what they did. They kind of went around me to, to check the wind even more to make sure they were smelling what they thought they were smelling. And they, they did what they were supposed to do and they kind of went off into the meadow. Um, and at that point, they were at my four o'clock, I'd say. 
and I'm still looking towards the hole and waiting for something to come out of the hole. And I'm kind of like transfixed on that hole thinking there's got to be some more deer coming out of there. Um, and I keep looking to my backside to the four o'clock to see if those does are there and they finally disappear, but I still periodically check it. And at one point I look back to my right and I see up on the ridge where there's another hole about 180 yards away, maybe 200 yards away. I see an antler flash through the trees. And this is the, the hole that I went into originally to do my little squat in the woods and just hang out the same hole that I came out of like three hours earlier. And so there's one antler coming by and it was a, a small uh, two by three. And I knew that the big deer that the other guys were after was hanging out with a small two by three. Um, so the, lo and behold, I see an antler behind that deer coming too. And this is a big deer and it's coming down the ridge and I'm trying to get a good look at it. And it's coming down the ridge and they're about 180 yards away. And there's a big bowl between us um, right on the edge of the meadow and the timber. And I'm like, that's a big, big deer. And it's not the one that I had seen, but it's a bigger deer. And I got to make a play. Sun's down and it's got to happen fast. So I get on the horse and uh, run down into the bottom of that gully as quickly as I can because the rise is so steep that they're not going to see my movement down on this gully. So I get down in there pretty quick. And as I'm, as I'm popping up and coming up, the smaller deer sees me and freaks out a little bit. At this point, I think I'm probably about 100 yards away, maybe 110. Um, and he he wasn't having me uh, in all the movement that I was making. And he did a couple of circles and went back into the hole. And I was shitting my pants at that point because I thought the big one was going to go with him. Like, that's usually what happens. And he, he threw that rack up silhouetted against the beautiful sky and just did a couple of these, like, majestic little turns. It's so pretty. And uh, he decided to keep feeding and slowly kept making his way down this ridge. Um, and I was like, wow, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> and I'm inching my way up the hill and knowing that uh, I'm in shadow and I'm not silhouetted behind me and that I can make a little bit of movement here and there, but not a lot. So I started kind of belly crawling up and he was speeding up his pace to come down this ridge and go into the meadow to feed and he was actually kind of dipping off the backside so every step i went he went over so i could only see like from his brisket up like his legs were below the rise of the hill and there was also sticks and trees in the way so you can kind of really see just like his, make his body out a little bit and it was getting dark and I, I had to make a move so i decided to kind of put a little more pressure and move a little faster and he was checking me out more and more um, but I would stop every time something happened and I was able to get the range finder up a couple times and I ranged them at 60 yards, 62 yards the first time. Um, and I clicked on and decided to draw back. And in the time of lowering my range finder and clicking on and drawing back, he probably made about four or five steps. This is the, this is the third time something really drastically wrong could have happened. And I didn't range after he made those steps, and he was turning away from me, and I just guessed him at 70. The whole 10 yards passed what I thought it would be, but kind of knowing that each deer step is a yard to, to, to three yards, I was like, let's do it for 70. And I let one fly, and I heard the sound, the, pos the, the positive sound of uh, what sounded like lungs, and uh, he jumped over the horizon and took off. And I just had to stop shaking for a while. 
Um, I just laid on the floor for a little bit and made sure everything was cool. And at this point it was, it was getting darker and I got the light out and I was trying to find blood and looking for an arrow and I really couldn't find anything, but I was pretty worked up still at that point And I wanted to give him some time. Um, and then I called my guide and he came out. So I just gave it about half an hour, wait for him to come out to help me and calm me down and stuff like that. And, uh, we, he was able to find blood and it was kind of sparse in the beginning, but there was blood there. Um, and then we tracked for a while, found an arrow about 150 yards into that blood uh, that was bubbly and nice. Um, and then we started seeing some splatters after that, but it was kind of a little bit partial here and there. And then it got thicker and thicker. And then we walked up on him and and there he was. He was 315 yards away, but I, I double lunged him. It was probably about three inches high. Mm-hmm. Um so I bet you he was at about 67 yards or something like that when I get judged him at 70. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was the biggest buck of my life. And it was just amazing, man. Oh, man. It's incredible. Um, yeah. What a crazy hunt. What a challenging terrain to immerse yourself in, you know, kind of like in the the terrain, it, 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 it like kind of – uh, determines how you're going to hunt or how well you're going to hunt. Like a lot of times you hunt the terrain more so <clears> than you hunt the deer, like trying to figure out a good huntable terrain with good topography that you can get close and enough cover in that. But boy, kind of forced to like hunt like some of that thicker terrain and hunt those parks that you're talking about. Like, uh, and then with the thick cover that surrounds it and then the deer come out and uh, into those parks, it, it makes for some giants in that terrain because they can grow up and grow old. But man, what a high degree of difficulty hunting that stuff. Right. Uh, you're talking about where I was hunting or yeah. more the Aspen patchy type stuff? Well, either one. It sounds like that was the terrain. But yeah, that terrain you were hunting, it sounds like you hunt, had to hunt them in their feeding feature, but they disappeared into that thick cover uh, throughout the day and then would come out to those parks and feed, but still fairly challenging, huh? Oh, I think so. Yeah. But I, I, I think I'm, I was used to that and trained with that in my earlier bow hunting career with the way I would hunt certain areas in Arizona that were similar to it. Okay. Just knowing that there's an attraction that's over here and there's any number of different avenues they can use to get to it. And mm-hmm. a lot of people were setting up ground blinds and trying to play that game or maybe a tree stand or something like that. And I can't stand that. I need to be mobile. So that if I am back in some timber and I see something that I'm after, I can make a move 100 yards or 200 yards in any direction and get a shot off rather than be stuck to a ground blind. And um, that's always worked for me mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to antelope hunting and deer hunting and everything. But I think that there's a whole different set of problems that arises moving around in their in their area. But uh, I, I just kept thinking to myself how many – things could have gone wrong and I could have never looked back at those does that had went behind me and caught a glimpse of the antler to my three o'clock. Um, and even known he could have gone right past me into the field. I wouldn't have even known about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's all these series of events that happen that I don't know if I'm making the right decision when I'm making it, but I'm making a decision Mm -hmm. and that decision is putting me on a road that leads me to some somewhere and it just happened to be that that led to a shot at 70 yards on a really nice buck. Yeah. Um, 
I often think about that as well. Like just the the chance glassing something and just catching a buck or just creating an opportunity. And like you say, you're out there and you have your skill set and your game plan, but sometimes it is just chance looking over your shoulder to the right and then catching antlers coming through there. Like you say, it had to be looking at that very moment, at that very hole that you hadn't been staring at. You'd been staring at the other one the does came out of. And so, like, it is a bit of that while you're hunting, you know, and maybe it's, you know, it it, it is a bit of luck. But if you're out there enough and making decisions, you know, you kind of create that luck and you catch those opportunities. But I wonder how many we miss, too. Like, how many times that giant buck that we're after or that we're looking for crosses and we don't catch him or moves across the deal and we we don't see him. I'm sure that happens just as often. But, yeah, with uh, sharpened skills and in there to try to kill a buck and then – like moving on your feet and being mobile, like that's the way I would hunt it too. But but not everybody can do that. Those deer, they catch movement so well. And uh, and like you say, you got like that that buck didn't trust that two by three for some reason when that two by three spooked. But then also knowing that like as it gets into that low light and that evening, <clears throat> you can get away with a lot more. Like if you're close right. enough to a buck where you do have an all in and your wind's okay and you get kind of that evening light or on bulls or anything for that matter, you can kind of get away with more. You can get away with that movement and they just don't quite catch you or pick you off. It seems like. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, and it takes some failure to realize that. Um, and, and you're, you know, one of the things I love watching is other bow hunter stock deer in person. Um, and it's so fun to watch guys that are, rookies and or uh super experienced because you can just see what's going to happen even you don't know what's going on with the wind um and and a lot of the times guys don't even know when they're moving that the deer is totally aware of them you know um they can be behind a rise and it makes me makes you wonder sometimes when you're watching the guy and he's behind a hill and the deer's over they're feeding and then suddenly like the deer's just keyed in on this dude on the other side of the hill the the hunter can't even see him like how much noise is that guy making on the other side of the hill (laughs) that that deer can sense that and it's just like so fun to watch because i learn a lot because it just tells you how uh turned on they are and how careful you have to be and how far away you have to be super careful Mm -hmm. like 300 yards you have to be like acting like you're 70 yards away sometimes you know and a lot of guys think that they're so far away that that doesn't matter um and i think that when you get uh to be on the ground and to be mobile you have to think more like that and and know that you're just a a fixture of the environment and you want to be the rock that doesn't move Mm -hmm. when these deer look around you know you never want to be moving when they're looking around and they're going to look around every seven seconds. So just be prepared to freeze every seven seconds or more. Man, you know so, I mean? so true, man. You're so spot on. I love your description of it. They are they are so switched on, these critters that we're chasing. And if they get a sense that something's there or they hear something or they catch some movement, then they really key into that spot. It's a way different story. Like if you can just stalk a deer and keep the absolute element of surprise where he's just feeding and moving and no idea you're there, it's amazing the moves that you can get away with. But the moment that he hears a stick or that he catches movement, then he's so keyed on. Now, if you move your leg, 
if you if you shuffle your your upper body, he catches that and he's gone. Like that's your chance gone, and that's. It, oh, yeah. it, it is wild. Like I love like hearing you learn from people's stocks because it's so true. Like if they hear you from 300 yards out, you're never getting to 70 yards, you know. And right. and uh, if they catch that movement and key into you, you know, the the stock's pretty much done. It's like that element of surprise is everything. But inside, once you get inside that bow range, there is a chance where they're keyed on to you looking in your direction. Where if you move slow enough. And, and no big movements and don't spook them. Like sometimes you can kill, still shoot that buck. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know what it is, why that two by three left and the big deer um, kept going. And if that was a, a mature animal move or it was because it was dusky enough that he felt comfortable there um, or, or because the wind was right or maybe he didn't see the movement like – the other deer did, mm-hmm. um, but he definitely saw my movement at some point, uh, but was more okay with it, maybe because it was darker. I'm not sure, um, but I keep thinking back to to both of the hunts this year and the, the moments where deer do key in on something, and I keep thinking about a deer's memory and how long they think about something, um, and they think about it for a long time. And you might be real still for 15 minutes and that deer will go back to feeding. And then the frequency of the head bob to check you out goes from every four seconds to every 30 seconds and then to nothing. But he's still thinking about what's going on in that direction, even though he's not looking over there. You know what I mean? And and, and, and he's ready to turn and look at you as soon as you get comfortable thinking that you can move in on him. If he's already checked you out once. All it takes is one time. <laughs> you know, so like, I feel like you just got to let that animal really sit. Like if they, if they check you out once, you got to let them sit until they, you're completely out of eyesight of them. Or it's like an, at least an hour later or something. If you want them to really calm down, mm-hmm. if it's a real big animal you don't want to mess around with. Like you just don't even push him. If he, if he gets you once and you're not within bow range, you got to just let him do his thing otherwise he could bugger off and you might not see him again yeah it's keep that element of surprise at all costs right if it's a deer being a deer i can kill him if it's a deer keyed into me hunting him then there's no chance you know (laughs) so yeah man you're spot on it's like that's where you really use that ungulation and you're really making sure the wind is right and then it's so important when you come over top those ridge lines and you're relocating them that you see him first you catch his antler you see him you don't overexpose yourself there's like all these moves that you have to make when you're hunting them, where if you make one mistake, the gig's up. But if you can do it and keep the element of surprise, a lot of times you can get an arrow in that buck. And, and sometimes it's where they're at, uh, uh, what you can get away with. But, yeah, man, it's like um, those the, the small moves that you make um, really determine your success. And I almost think like when I'm stalking bucks, it's it's like – I'm not going to screw this up. Like this deer may move off and I don't get the shot and I don't kill this buck, but I'm not going to move too quick and make too much noise. And then he's keyed into me spooking. And then it's like, well, if I just would have slowed down, maybe I would have got to that rise and he didn't know I was hunting him. Or I just always think like, take that extra second or extra minute. And especially hunting mule deer to make sure that I'm moving slow enough and quiet enough. And it's not, it's wild too because that becomes instincts as well because you can get away with a lot more noise when you have some wind cover 
and then when it's totally still out, sometimes I won't even stock a buck because it's so still that I just know he's going to hear me moving in where I don't have a play. I'm going to have to wait till he gets to a later bed. And so right. it's really dependent on the conditions, too, what you can get away with. And it's all just like this read that those instincts from your gut determining if you can get there or if you can't. But really slowing down, like the closer you get, almost the slower you should move. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I know you're the and same. I, and I'm realizing, you know, I think about Matthew's bows, and they just released that new bow that is awesome, and it's the first one in a while that I've really wanted to get, but I can't afford it, that I need to become a better stalker and hunter more so than a guy that can shoot longer distances consistently because more often than not, the skills that we just discussed are going to put you in the, the zone of success more than, I think, shooting perfectly at super long distances. Cause if you can close that distance and feel comfortable, uh, that's the key, man. And I think mule deer, are the toughest animal to do that on. And I know a lot of my family members like hunting, uh, elk. Um, they like calling elk and they like the roar of the big animal. And I, I say to them that mule deer don't make any noise. They spook harder than anything. They live in some of the craziest country and, uh, they're witty. So try to get a big mule deer with a bow, and that's just as hard as it gets, you know, especially on public land. Oh, man, 100%. Yeah, it so is. Um, How did it go for you this year? Did you did you do some early ones? Yeah, it was good. It was um, – I had a great mm-hmm. season. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. um, unreal, a bunch of good adventures. And so, yeah, I had quite a few muley tags this year and quite a few muley hunts. So I did have a couple early ones. Uh, mm-hmm. The deal is, is I had a, a BC goat hunt that I was doing with a buddy of mine that's a guy oh, from nice. Outfitter and able to get a tag and then pretty much just go with my buddy on this <clears throat> bow hunt. And in Wait. fact, we're releasing the film here like in a week or so that's um, pretty cool that I'm watching the kind of the rough draft of now the editing process. But um, anyway, so I had this BC hunt, but <clears throat> it takes place in August. And so August is my favorite month to hunt mule deer. And one of the tags... I drew and I thought I was going to draw and I thought I'd really put my focus in there. And then I came across another tag that I just got a lucky draw. I drew it with zero points and it was a good unit that I've hunted and the units on the up. So I really had two of these early season hunts. And, um, you know, it's mm-hmm. always like a bit of reflection looking back at what I could have done different or uh, how the hunts would have gone. But I had two amazing hunts. I just was limited on time. I had lost a lot of my carpenters, mm-hmm. burned a lot of my time in BC and and so mm-hmm. I had to be on the job site and such. And so I, I had some really good tags and just didn't have the time to dedicate. And the first one I did five days. And so uh, it was a, a unit that I had been to before, an early season unit, August 10th opener. But by the time mm-hmm. I could get there, I think it was like August 25th or 28th, which was still okay. It was actually great, man. All the hunters were gone. I had the whole mountain range to myself. And went in there with a cameraman, and we tried to film it in five days. And, um, man, I had action in there. It was really good. Part of my trouble was is there was, like, um, a big group of bucks, so, like, 25 bucks that were hanging together. And there was two bucks in the group that I really mm-hmm. wanted to shoot. And just trying to get the right opportunity on the right buck and not get pegged by the other ones was, like, this Tough. high degree of difficulty, you know. And mm-hmm. then we came down to the last day, and I spotted a buck with good backs, but 
it was about a 3,000 vertical climb, and we went for it. But by the time we got up there, of course, he had changed beds and then just still hunting through the shadows, and I pick out his antlers, and it's just this perfect scenario. And I'm able to get set up. He doesn't know I'm there. One of the bucks feeds out. There's three bucks total, and so I have this buck that steps out. And he steps out like in this shaded spot where he's all shaded in, in the trees, but it's bright sunshine from me to him. And so it's like looking in bright sunlight into these dark shadows and into this darkness. And we wait for him to stand 30, 40 minutes or something like that. And that buck stands up and he's totally broadside. It looks like I can drive a school bus through my shooting lane, don't see anything in the way. And so he tell my cameraman, I'm going to shoot him right here above this tree, get up and get footage, you know. And so he stands up, we kind of get up slow and it's just perfect broadside looking away and settle my pin and execute. And man, I nick this limb in there that's about the size of my pinky in those dark shadows and uh, deflects my arrow off and end up missing him like on the last day. And um, so it was just, it was a bummer, but it was like a really good hunt. And it was just like, man, if I could just spend more time here, I think I could fill out on a pretty nice one. But on to the next, had a good tag and came home, did some carpentry. And God, the, just the way it worked out with this hunt and filming my elk hunt. I was down to like three days for this tag and it's three days in a unit I've never been, but it was, um, was that the Utah unit? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. The one we did, had discussed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. Cool. So went in there and, um, and it's pretty epic. It was, um, my timing was bad. Not only like the days I had, but by the time I got there, it was like into September, into later September. I want to say like almost the 10th. So starting to shed their velvet, starting to secondary living. The bow hunters have already been chasing them since August 15th. Now, it was great. It didn't have any mule deer hunting pressure, and so I had the mountains all to myself. Um, so I was able so when, to go. When were you in there? The end of September? Uh, the first week in September. So I think like the 7th to 10th is when I hunted it. Of September, got yeah. you. When does their bow season go till there for mule deer? It's August 15th to September 15th in this unit. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, I was very curious about that area because I spent over two months in there shooting the last movie I was working on, and I just saw deer running around all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it looked like an interesting spot. Yeah, it was. There's like different habitats. It goes all the way from high country, and then below that is kind of the aspen patches, and below that is kind of like a... Uh, the oaks with a, a bunch of like the acorns and things that were dropping off them. That's so, where I was seeing most of them. Yeah. So there was all different types of habitats and there was deer in all of them. And I will say like getting there later, a lot of the deer dropped out of that high country and were back into the aspens or into mm -hmm. those oaks that were a little bit more challenging to hunt, like a little bit gotcha. thicker country. Uh, cool. There was still some holdouts in the high country that would hold out on the edge of the timber. And so I ended up locating some great bucks and it was just like a full send scenario. Like I'm so out of time and I've got so many responsibilities, but I've just got these three <laughs> days. So it's like, I mean, it's, it's literally work till six o'clock at night, hop in the truck, drive all night. Like, you know, uh, I, I slept for a couple hours that night somewhere, but just so sleep deprived, load up the backpack in the dark to the top of the range and just like this place I had never been trying to like dive in and figure it out in a short amount of time. And, and fortunately I, you know, was able to find some bucks and find some great bucks there. They have some great genetics and, um, <laughs> good age class and great management down there. And man, I was yep. able to chase, 
just some monster bucks. I just could not make it happen. Now, you know, late season, a couple of my hunts, I made it work on the first stock. Now, you know, the the first hunt wasn't that way, and now the second hunt is in this way. So, like, I found a monster deer that I really wanted to kill, and I watched them and patterned them. And the deal is, is they weren't bedding like classic high country deer. They were like down lower in that secondary living. So when they went to bed in the morning, they would just dive into the thick trees and just disappear in the timber where you had no chance to get a play on them in their bed, no chance to see them move throughout the day. Like I'd grab vantage points above their timber and it was just so thick you couldn't see into it. And then they'd come back out in the parks in the evening. So a bit of that game you're playing when you killed your buck, like in Arizona, where you're playing these feeding features in these parks. And I know these bucks are here but i've got to time it when they're coming out or where they're going to come out and then be Mm -hmm. there so instead of like stalking them in their bed or like i would stalk classic high country mule deer i ended up uh like coming after them in their feeding feature in the evening so bucks came out the one night in this park from the timber i knew they were when i sat above them all day long and there's actually two shooters in the group there's one that shed his velvet that's just got these red devil horns that are just so heavy such great forks front and back are you talking about the same hunt that we were talking about in september or a different later one no this one in september gotcha okay yeah yeah so um uh, so yeah, so I watched this, this buck that he shed his velvet and big red horns, heavy, like, you know, high one eighties, low one nineties, just a giant. And then there's a velvet in there. That's just incredible. You know, that's, um, you know, one of those world-class deer. And so I watch them come out and they're feeding in the evening and it's like, okay, I got them. I've set myself all the way around the mountain. I've watched from inside striking distance. Now's my time, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I dip down in the draw and I've got this this um uh, thermal wind that's right in my face and i've got 45 minutes to get to him and it'll take me nice. like 15 20 minutes and so i work my way up the draw get close dump my pack dump my stuff and then roll up to where these bucks are and i'm just getting to the top and i hear a deer blow at me I'm like, nah, there's no way they, they winded me. My wind's perfect, and they're kind of over the rise where I can't see them. And so I kind of creep up where they are. It's like less than 100 yards where I hear this deer blow and just come face-to-face with this mountain lion right there that had no. walked down that was either hunting those deer or had just stumbled down through them and had blown out those bucks. And then Fair I met them face-to-face at about 20 yards or so. I thought I was going to, you know, I thought it, it, it might have got a little western there, but um, he went the other direction. I wasn't. <laughs> You know, I didn't have anything to protect myself but my bow, so it was going to have to be a quick shot. So, you know, just had, like, that play, and then I got to play the next morning, like, caught the Bucks leaving the basin and, and figured out where they were and played the game with that red horn buck a bit and just couldn't quite get an arrow in him, and my three days were up. And so I, like, had a good early season, but, um, yeah, I did not arrow a early season deer, which really drove me to hunt harder in, you know, my elk season and my late season muley tags, which I still had some good tags. So I was successful, arrowed a good antelope, uh, bull elk, and then I had great late season tags. It was like the year of tags, and so, uh, yeah, I arrowed, like, um three late season deer this year like just really nice mature bucks some of those were like prairie style mule deer so um yeah just great hunts one was a backpacking solo one no footage just by myself in one of my favorite places on planet earth and killed one way back in there and backpacked them out which was really cool and then um 
did a new hunt like uh uh like in the badlands country out there and just had a great hunt out there like found some good deer finally found a mature one played the game in the coolies and canyons right at pre-rut and able to put a perfect arrow in that one and then just wrapped up like this late season rut hunt which is like deep snow and bitter cold and big mountains and big heavy deer in there and it started to snow which you know once that snow gets crunchy it gets tough to kill them but um yeah i was on bucks i think i hunted it maybe six or seven days there ended up like arrowing a really nice buck there in the late season so yeah it was a it was a great season but my early season was a a bit painful i had a couple failures there but it it can happen on any hunt and not to say that if i had more time i would get it done but boy i think i would have had a better chance at it you know sure um my hat's off to you for even being able to go do all these hunts and boy, the knowledge that you gain going to every uh, type of landscape and state and learning and doing it solo is just invaluable. There's not too many people out there that have that kind of bow hunting knowledge in their library. So it's always an honor to talk with you about it. Um, and I think it's just so cool. And, and you talk about the near misses and it's like, not misses, but the close encounters with big deer, and it's that's what it's all about. And if you're not coming back after a close encounter with a big deer, um, then you're not a bow hunter because because you just don't you just don't get them every season. You know what I mean? I can't tell you how many times I've been on that over the counter tag and chasing the same deer for three seasons, and he shows up just every week to 365 days later, and you get a few shots. And I always told myself if you get one opportunity a year it's a successful hunt because they're just so rare um, on those nice big mature animals that are during the rut. But to, to go to a new state like that and, and capitalize on a tag or turn up big animals is, is so far ahead of the game for most people, you know, and I wanted to help you as much as possible on that one, but it sounded like you did pretty good. Uh, And hopefully you'll, you'll be back in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks a bunch, man. No, I appreciate the insight. I knew you had spent time down in there. So, yeah, I appreciate your willingness to share information. And, yeah, we're just cut from the same cloth, man. You, like, draw from the same stuff. Is You made so good on your opportunities this year. Those two deer that you so killed lucky. were just absolutely amazing. It, it is luck, but it's um it's the combination of that luck and that skill set that you've worked so hard on coming to fruition, you know. But, yeah, like, mm-hmm. I, I love the way you understand it as well as you know how difficult it is and, and and any of these hunts can humble us or any of these bucks can make the right moves and we never get a chance at them you know but it is like hunting these you know these different species or different habitats different seasons like all of this like sharpens our skills and like gets us more prepared to make those right decisions when we do get those opportunities you know and and definitely the early season like shape me or like uh, uh help build that that confidence in those plays mm-hmm. and what i can get away with and what i can't like got me real comfortable with like making these plays on these animals to where then you go into late season which can be really difficult and you know a first stock on an antelope i arrowed them and a first stock on a muley i arrowed it second stock like the first stock on another muley hunt able to arrow them so really made good on some opportunities there the elk took me more plays and i had a mule deer hunt where i made handful of plays before it came together but um yeah like all that stuff it sharpens us and get a, gets us more prepared for the next one which we love to do Right. And, yeah. you know, uh, the wise old bow hunter told me that one man only has so many Septembers in him. Um, so you have to really take advantage of him. 
And it's so interesting with the point systems and all these different things with different states and it getting harder to draw all over the place. Here I am right now, and a couple of weeks ago, I was just looking at all the draws, trying to figure out the plan for next year, not even knowing where I'm going to be working in August <laughs> and September. But I got to put a plan together now because Idaho needs a draw, and then you got to get over the counter in Arizona starting in December 1st, and everything's changing. Um, and the points are wild and crazy and the point creeps going. So I really, uh, am thankful for just the, 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 the over the counter opportunities I still have in my home state. Uh, so blessed for that because I know a lot of people don't even have that anymore. Um, and it, it, you know, so what if there's only 10 deer per square mile or two deer per square mile? Um, if you hunt hard and you get out there and you're passionate about it, you're going to find something special. Um, so I'm just hoping to continue to have opportunities to do that while the kids are young and, and they need their parents around time is even more limited. Um, and this is the first time I've hired deer guides in 11 years and it turned out to be a good thing. Um, and I've heard a lot of people not have good experiences with guides, but I think if, if they see you as a person that's passionate about what you're into and and they see that you're a, a good hunter, they, they work a little harder for you. Um, so I think I got lucky with that and it, it all kind of came together this year, but I'm excited to see what happens in the future. Um, I remember listening to a podcast with Randy Ulmer, who I've always kind of put on a pedestal, uh, when I first started, you know, you, you would check in on his, his social media and it would just be over the counter monster after over the counter monster. And I said, how's this guy doing it? And, you know, he's scouting for 60 days out of the year or whatever he's doing. But he, in that podcast, he said something that stuck with me eight years later. And he said, there was something that clicked in my bow hunting career. And it was somewhere in my like late thirties. And I just started going from shooting, uh, average animals to mature animals. And I, I can't explain what it was or, or how many years it took for me to get there, but I just like figured out and understood what they were doing and where they would be and where to find them. Um, and it's just wild because mature animals do different things than the younger ones. And it's not according to the playbook. Yeah. That's, so, uh, that, so keep an so open right. mind, I yeah. think, for, for those kind of animals. Man, you're so right. Like you're you're good at finding them as well. You those animals they have to survive multiple hunting seasons to be able to make mm-hmm. it that old and they have to survive in an area where they're not getting noticed and they're not getting noticed by other hunters. And so yeah, you do have to think differently or think where a mature animal can grow up and you can go a whole hunt and see a bunch of immature <clears throat> animals, you know. And I think it also it's just like like working our way up the trophy rungs of the ladder to be able to pass those lesser animals as well, you know? And it's, <clears throat> boy, I start to see a five-year-old mule deer. I start to get pretty excited in any habitat. But you're right, and, yeah. like, you you almost have to think like them. Like, a lot of times, you're making these decisions based on where these deer <clears throat> should be. And I noticed it in my last late-season hunt. Like, you know, uh, uh, the deer bumped the does, and they bumped off the ridgeline, and they circled around the point. And I knew, like, where this deer was going to head. I knew where to look for this deer, and I got down on the point, ran into a two-point. I had to freeze up, and then here comes this buck that I'd been looking for for an hour that I figured where he'd go and where he'd end up, and then there he is. Like, you start to get this sixth sense when they're heading in and out of country, when they're going to bedding, when they're going to lay down, which route they took, like – 
a lot of this is like guesswork as we're going. Like the deer goes over the ridge, and then you walk over the ridge and go, did he go left or right? And you have to make a decision where to go look for him. And a lot of times when you start to get keyed in or thinking like these deer, you choose the right direction and you look in the right spot and then you turn him up again and he's bedded right where you thought he should be or whatever the case is. But I mm-hmm. noticed that as you were telling stories on your hunt, like you were talking about what you thought these deer would do or where you thought they would go. And then a lot of times they'd show up there. Like that's a big part of it, isn't it? Like thinking like the deer. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some luck involved, but you just have to weigh all the things that they key in on, the wind and the sun and the, you know, the path that sometimes is the straightest arrow and the easiest way for them to traverse. Um, they're not necessarily going to go up a rock slide because that's the only way out. Like, they're going to take an easy way to get to where they need to be to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just watch, you just watch them. And every time you watch an animal run away from you, you're learning something because they're going that way for a reason. So be taking notes, even when you're angry that you blew it because you're learning about how they get out of there. Mm-hmm. And that's only going to tell you where they're going to show up the next day. Um, so yeah, all that information is, is super important. Um, God, I had something on the tip of my tongue and showing my age again. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, there went. Yeah, no, for sure. It's um, yeah, it it is wild. Like to um uh, uh, think of what they're gonna do and then look in those spots. You just, it's like getting to know the species that you're hunting and really like reading the mannerisms off them too. Like you can tell almost what if a buck's on edge and looking for danger, or if he's focused on feeding, or if he's focused on rutting. Like you can almost figure what those animals are doing and like. You know, like you talked about freezing when an animal looks in your direction. Well, all of a sudden you start to read when these animals are on edge or when they go back to feed or uh, when they're moving. Is he spooky? Did he hear something? Or like you get to read their emotion that that uh, that they put out through like their their mannerisms that they have just while they're being deer, too. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, And each each deer is different. And I think the pressure and the amount of people in there will uh, predict what's going on with those animals. And it came back to me now what I was thinking of saying. Oh, good. Um, one thing I've noticed in the last six or seven years is that, you know, there's been a lot more predation out there. In particular, wolves have made a, a big comeback in a lot of different areas and in Oregon. And uh, and I'm finding uh, elk and deer in areas that they're, they typically wouldn't be in before. And they're closer to civilization and farmland and within, like, two mile uh stretches um where you normally find some of these animals i'm not saying they're not still there but i think the animals have gotten keen to get away from the predators to be a little closer to um flat land private land uh maybe pivots stuff like that where they can see like 360 degrees a long way they can outrun something and uh, and there's a food source there where there's water. So you you couple like drought with wolves in the mountains um, where they typically love to be in that high, cool alpine environment with amazing grasses and every little drainage. Um, and they're just I mean, I go from bowl to bowl to bowl and you just didn't see what you saw five or six years ago here in Oregon. Um, and even in some places in Arizona, I feel feel like it's like that, too. And I think it's kind of interesting to think 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 differently like that because sometimes one of the best places to hunt is going to be 
right on the outskirts of a big chunk of uh, private farmland or something and figuring out um, how they get in and out of there. Mm-hmm. And there might not be any cover at all, but you could see them coming in and out mm-hmm. and they're there, you know. Yeah. No, that's um, you're you're right. The in the hunting pressure as well plays an effect to where the tags, where the hunters are, and yeah, you can find them on ag, and you can find them on uh, little slivers of public land, or going back and forth to ag. You know, and I also, you know, places that you can't glass very well. I notice like high country deer, they feel the bow hunting pressure now, as it's gotten really popular to bow hunt alpine mule deer, where they move mm-hmm. down to secondary living. They move down earlier. to more cover. They move down, yeah, they move down earlier, like even in August. And so they're moving down in those aspens or down in that cover or down 2,000 feet off the tops because they're finding easier living down there where they're not getting <clears throat> that hunting pressure on them too. 100%. So yeah, yeah. I, think, I think these animals, these ungulates, are constantly evolving from us hunters, from predation, from the drought, from like all these different conditions. And now we have the the big winter that was just thrown at them last year. And a lot of these Western states that were hit hard, like Wyoming and Idaho mm. and Utah and places that historically have been really good to me where now you can hardly find a deer in. And so, you know, you kind of have to, you know, there's still great healthy populations of mule deer out there. And there's still mature bucks in almost every different unit. Like a lot of my biggest bucks have come from low point units and easy draw places. So they do exist in these places, but it almost comes down to like creative thinking and outside the box thinking and kind of glassing these spots that aren't known or thought of, you know, historically or classically for mule deer. Yep. I mean, that's, I'm excited to hunt like that because there's something special about finding the needle in the haystack. And not a single truck in the area. And it's the best. I mean, what better thing is there than that? Yeah. To yeah. find a double dropper and four foot sage that's walking two miles to this little water hole that nobody knows about. Yep. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> yeah. Like, I found a spot in Utah. One of my biggest bucks came from there. He's a 211. And, um, you know, I figured out how to hunt this place and it was a high pressure place. It was, it felt almost like combat hunting as there was a lot of bow hunters in the unit. And I had seen this buck two times in seven days and I knew he was living in there. I think it was 11 glassing sessions. I saw him two times and he had moved down into the thick trees. And so there was a lot of hunters that were on the ridge lines that were glassing these basins. And I killed this buck and I had that knowledge of that place, but you know, it was like I enjoyed the hunt and I enjoyed hunting that deer and killing him like as one of the the highlights and I killed him like in these cliffs above 10,000 feet like in this great place but I decided not to hunt that unit anymore because it wasn't a good fit for me the you know the high pressure these deer being down in secondary living the not seeing them like it grows giants in there but it's just not quite the right fit for what I'm looking for and the adventure I'm looking for like I'd rather go chase you know, 170, 180 inch deer and have like all the mountains to myself and go have this wild experience and hunt sure. deer that doesn't know he's being hunted than I would like this, this combat hunting or having a bunch of hunters in this same area. And not yeah. that I don't hunt high pressure units like I do. And you know, that buck came from a great place. And, but I, I'm just saying like a lot of what we're doing too is, is in the experience of it. Sure. I mean, the combat hunting raises the anxiety level uh, a few notches for sure. And, you know, I threw together a a haphazard elk hunt at the very end of the season for four days locally. And I tried to do some some local hunting and I showed up the first day 
and there must have been a line of people on uh, the area between public and private where we knew animals were going to traverse from. And it was the worst experience ever because there were arrows flying as soon as an animal crossed the line. And I said, wow, <laughs> I just wanted to try to do something close and local to the house so I could be back for breakfast with the family mm-hmm. and see the kids. Cause I'd already been gone all this time and uh, hunting for mule deer. And it just totally put me off. And it was a scenario where I think that uh, mistakes can be made um, and animals can be wounded, and it's it's not necessarily something to do. Like, I'd rather be a little farther, deeper back, and find some other areas. But um, but yeah, combat hunting. Try to avoid that. And if you can find that diamond in the rough, I'm that's what I'm going to be looking for in the future for sure. Yeah, well, there's a lot of tricks to like avoiding the pressure, like showing up late to some of my hunts this year, and nobody was oh, hunting. Yeah. I had the mountains to myself, and you know, I'm not saying like I hunt places where people hunt, and it it just seems like I can get away from them and go find my own experience. Like you can kind of see where guys are parked, or you can hike farther back, or you can kind of separate yourself and get away from them. But there are places, you know, where you can't, and it's just like man, it. It's that's not the style of hunting that that I enjoy. I I want to get back to where I can, you know, go be me versus the deer and not me and a bunch of other guys trying to kill the same deer. It's just like I got no interest in that at least for me or whatever. But um man, it's uh uh it's it's always so fun to to get you on the line and like have a conversation, man. It's um Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, of, dude, of congrats I so much on your listening. season. Those bucks are just incredible, man. I was just Thank so you. pumped for you that. when you shot over pictures. I really appreciate you keeping in touch, you know, throughout the year as well, but yeah, those those bucks are unreal, man. Um kudos. Congratulations. Those well, yeah, uh you know how tough they are because you've been chasing them for so many years, but um man, those are just two stellar trophies. Well, thank you so much, and uh, hopefully the relationship keeps going, and we can keep uh, having bountiful seasons, and uh, there's opportunity available for people that want to work hard. So um, I love the resource. Eastman's Elevated has got to be the best place to, to learn something if you're just getting into it. I, I know I learned a lot years ago just with all the different bow hunters that come on and the different tactics and the different um, topography and, and, and landscapes that all these different guys from different states hunt in. Um, and you can apply it to everything, you know, elk, mule deer, antelope, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're the man. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, uh, always fun to have you on and like always fun to hear your perspective as well. So yeah, keep up the good work, man. Congratulations. And thanks again. Obviously. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Right. Take care. Yep. All right, guys. That's a wrap. Fun conversation with Michael. That guy just absolutely loves to bow hunt. And I love some of some of his outside the box thinking uh, to harvest these next level mule deer. So uh, I'll have uh, the picture of um, his two big bucks uh, will be on the intro to the podcast or on the photo for the podcast. And then also we'll release them on social media so you can check out their those bucks. They're absolutely incredible. So congratulations to him. Always like having him on the podcast. And uh, thanks a bunch to you guys for tuning in. Eastman's for all their support. Make sure to check out my other podcast, Life of a Bow Hunter with Dan Picard. It's on a different feed. You can find that. I think we're 20 episodes in or 21. I think we just released uh, this past Wednesday. So you can check that one out. Uh, All about um, 
protecting what we love and hunting, you know, and, and how you can get involved in um, some of this stuff that's going on with the reintroduction of wolves and trying to ban mountain lion hunting and all these things that affect us as hunters. And I've just realized that I, I have to get more involved uh, to protect what I love to do. So that's what that podcast is all about. You check that out. The Mule Deer Course, promo code BRIANMDC will save you a little bit of money there. Uh, Eastman's Tag Hub, Brian will save you a little bit of money there. And, um, man, we're just cruising. Um, new year. Couldn't be more excited. Going to run over the Eastman's office here in about, um, two weeks or so. We'll record some podcasts and do some business and just be good to catch up to those guys as it's been about six months of going hard and haven't really seen them much. And then, um, definitely be at the Western Hunting Expo coming up. So looking forward to that, uh, seeing some of you guys there and, uh, recording some podcasts and, um, Man, just cruising to the new year. I've got to make some plans for spring. I mean, I know I've got my spring bear hunt coming up, but um, I haven't really settled on which adventures I'd like to do this spring. So I really got to do some thinking about that and then just trying to plan out my season and um, see what I really want to go hunt this year. It's like such a you, you got to prioritize your time or what you want to go hunt. It's like I love to to go up north and hunt caribou or hunt moose, but it does take away from the mule deer and elk around here. So just trying to plan out my season and figure out what I really want to hunt and uh, what I really want to do. And also talking about uh, another big hunt in the spring, we'll see if it comes to fruition, but uh, I've kind of gotten in on a hunt that I'm looking at for spring. So I would love to see that come together. I, I'm not sure if it will or not. It, it would be like a dream hunt of hunting um, G-bears or whatever. And so I've always had the dream of, of hunting a, a, a grizzly bear. And so like, you know, I've, if I could work out the right deal or if it came together, I would be stoked. And it's one of those hunts that I kind of feel like I'd never be able to get to do kind of like doll sheep or something like that, where it's just out of my price range. But, um, yeah, you'd never say never. And who knows, maybe I'll be able to put something together. So, um, yeah, I'll be working on that. And uh, just working on bringing you guys the absolute best podcast. I, you know, we've been going for seven or eight years now, and um, man, I just want to put all my effort into this thing to bring you guys the absolute best, most entertaining recordings I can. And so, uh, man, I'm gonna put my head down and and really come up with some good guests for you guys and um, good conversations in depth that'll improve your archery or improve your hunting. And uh, so that's my that's one of my huge goals for 2024 is I want to continue to grow this podcast. And uh, the only way I know how to grow it is to bring you guys the absolute best content. So I'll be working hard on my side on that and really appreciate your guys' support uh, downloading and listening, even though it's not hunting season now. Uh, this this uh, Western hunting is a 365 lifestyle to be successful. At least that's the, the way I've always approached it. And uh, it's worked for me. So um Man, with that, we'll leave you guys with this podcast and check in with you guys next week.